have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast. Talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here at the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff, ready to be played and added to the great library of RPGs, along with my Grognard files. This time I've got my haul from this year's UK Games Expo, which took place earlier this month. I got the Reign of Terror, the Call of Cthulhu adventure book from Chaosium, set against the background of French Revolution. It was originally conceived as a historical interlude during the Horror on the Orient Express campaign, but it's perfect as a couple of standalone investigations. I'm scheduled to play it with Blythe and Eddie in a couple of months. I also got The Spire, an indie game of drow shenanigans in a high tower as the players mount an insurgency against their elvish overlords. I also picked up Carphenaeum, the role-playing game of the ancient worlds and Arabian Nights, a Ray Harryhausen RPG. Talking of which, here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. What, what's this? She's standing next to a man wearing a toupee woven from wire. He, he's making hand gestures towards me. And what's that by their side? R2-D2? No, it's a remote control bin. Yes, it's the eternal champion hitting 1980s primetime television in 3-2-1. I did the hand thing. We've made 50 podcasts of this rubbish and you could waste three days end-to-end listening to what we've churned out over the past three years. Yet, we haven't devoted an episode to the mainstay of our gaming life back in the day, White Dwarf. It was first published in June, July of 1977 by Games Workshop and White Dwarf was the RPG platform, the connection to others and a reminder that there were other people playing these games other than us. In the first hundred or so issues, it covered everything from D&D to Car Wars. In this part of the episode, I talked to Mike Brunton about his early years in the hobby and his experiences at TSI UK, and as a professional rules lawyer and general fixer for an Imagine magazine. This part ends at the point where he joins Games Workshop. Next time, we talk in a bit more detail about his time at Games Workshop and his stint as the editor of White Dwarf. In the interview, we also mentioned the impact that zines had on gaming culture in the mid-80s. One of the mainstays of the zine scene was Quasits and Quasars, and we have Neil Hopkins, one of the contributors who helped shape the fanzine's content, and is the Grog Squad guest on First, Last and Everything. 
One of the pages that we scrutinised in White Dwarf was the small lads. We were desperate to find people to play with. We'd look at people who'd fit our precise criteria. Oh, this one looks promising. But it's in Wigan, and that's miles away. It's only in the next town to Bolton, but it might as well have been St Ives when you're twelve. This one looks good, but he's ten. Far too young. We don't want to be playing with kids. This one's near, and the right age. But chivalry and sorcery, that sounds bobbins. There was nothing else for it. We needed to put an advert in White Dwarf ourselves. FRP Bolton Our small Bolton-based club is in need of players and GMs for RuneQuest, Traveller, D&D, TNT and others. No experience needed, just imagination. 13 to 18 year olds, please contact. We waited a while for a response, but when a group of lads turned up to Blythe's house, he wasn't in. His mum had sent him away on a night school course. I said a dream of him becoming a technical whiz kid in the white heat of information technology. She didn't get their names either, but she said that one of them had a feather in his hat. We visit Ed in his shed, who relates the story of that fateful night. Finally, I'm joined in the attic with Blythe, thumbing over our old copies of the magazine and reflecting on some of the highlights. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. Welcome to Open Box, part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. And this time I'm in the room of role-playing rambling with Mike Brunton, a familiar name from the heyday of RPGs. Hello, Mike. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us. No, you're welcome. And uh, we're going to go into this virtual time machine back uh, to way back in your past. So <laughs> so the question I always ask to start off with is, how did you get into um, RPGs and who were you playing with? Uh, I got into RPGs completely by accident. Um, it, it literally was pure chance that I happened to pick up this strange little wooden pattern box in a shop called the Bradford Train Shop Supermarket. Uh, and this would be in 75. It was a really strange shop. It was in a, a terraced house in Bradford. Downstairs was all model railways. Upstairs was all war games. So it was a very strange shop. They had a system where you could take things back and swap them, and they would give you vouchers if you spent a certain amount of money. And I bought a couple of sets of war games rules from them. And I went in again, and I just saw this box set, and I thought, oh, TSR, I've bought one of their games before. I'd bought um, something called Warriors of Mars, which was their um, fairly badly illustrated, I think is the best way to describe it. Actually, the illustrations were appalling. Um, uh, John Carter title from 74. And I thought, well, it's going to be worth a punt. So I picked it up, bought it, and it was utterly confusing. <laughs> and it made no sense. what the, the original first edition D&D set made absolutely no sense whatsoever until you'd read it about 20 times and then you began to see that there was something in there it, it just hooked me if only in trying to find out how it worked and i ended up and this was what 74 75 ish 
probably 75. Didn't really play it that much until maybe 76, 77 when White Dwarf started, you know, just before White Dwarf appeared. And in 78, I went to college in Huddersfield and there was a war game society in Huddersfield, which went by the splendid title of the Kirklees Military Modeling and Gaming Society. And one of the guys who was there was a guy called Tom Kirby. Ah, right. And that's where I really got started playing every week. And I ended up being one of the people, because I'd read the rule book, kind of got my head around how it worked. I ended up being people, one of the people who was a regular um, DM uh, at that. Tom, at that point, was a tax inspector of all things. And he got a job at TSR a couple of years later. And I ended up staying with the War Games Society and doing bits and pieces there. One of the, jo- one of the kind of wargaming jobs I ended up doing was painting toy soldiers and um, acting as the intro DM for everybody who joined the club. So I'd have the novices table, as it were, at the club, and, and run that. And, and what kind of games were there? And were they? Are they... That kind of... Well, it was, it, was, it was, well, let's see, at that point there was, you, you had a massive choice of uh, Dungeons & Dragons, or Metamorphosis Alpha, or Tunnels & Trolls, or Traveller. And that was it. That was your games. And then later on, I mean, there were various... There were various, It was one of these periods where, a bit like being a medieval scholar, you could read the hot every rule book in existence. You know, because there were only about 25 rule books in existence, you know? It yeah. was, there was Empire of the Petal Throne, and then RuneQuest came along, and then Chivalry and Sorcery, and then... Twilight 2000 and the Morrow Project and all the rest of them. And you could end up with a big collection of games fairly quickly that covered everything and have them all because there weren't hundreds and hundreds of separate rule sets. So we ended up doing quite a lot of different things. But everybody tended to gravitate back to D&D because it was kind of the common thing. Yes. So there was a table of people, or at least three or four tables of people playing D&D and probably somebody playing Traveller every every week and every other weekend. I ended up getting into the business, as it were, purely by chance, because Tom remembered that I could paint toy soldiers. TSR needed somebody to paint some toy soldiers for some for, for some adverts. The, the old, I don't know whether you ever saw them, the D&D Grenadier miniatures. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so they sent me a box set and said, can you paint these and send them back? And I did. And then they wanted me to do some more. And after that, it, it carried on like that. And then eventually they said, do you want a job? And I said, well, yeah, you know, doing what? And they went, well, painting some toy soldiers, uh, bits and pieces. And I went, yeah, okay, where do I sign up? And I was in. It was pure spawny chance. There was no no skill or judgment involved. It, it was luck rather than anything else, I think, looking back. Um, I would spend a couple of a day a week doing toy soldiers, which were then either used in adverts or given to shops or given to customers or whatever. And I also ended up doing things like running the invoicing system for the accounts department and answering the post. And I was the rules query guy for a while. Actually, for most of my career at TSR, I answered the rules queries. So if I screwed up your game and you're listening, I do apologize. <laughs> uh, um, I didn't mean to, but that, that was the kind of things I was doing. And then when Imagine came along, they needed somebody to go onto that to look after the um, the technical side of the articles. 
technical side, so that's like um, statistics and stat blocks and making that kind sure, of thing. Yeah, making sure the rules, making sure the rules are followed. TSL was going through one of these very weird phases where they suddenly got trademarks, so everything had to be trademarked. So, so you're the person who had to put the TMs on everything. Yeah, well, one of them. <laughs> it was. <laughs> there was an army that. of them. <laughs> there was uh, there, there was a, a, basically if you if you it was one of these things where you know you would get shouted at if you didn't put the the trademarks on properly uh, because at that point nobody really knew how serious trademarking and you know they they knew that intellectual property was quite important but they didn't quite know exactly what the rules were going to be <laughs> so they were very cautious about it hence the the, the Indiana Jones thing of putting a team on Nazis in yes. Indiana Jones, <laughs> yeah. which of course is the famous one that everybody now mocks. But they were what they were doing there is they knew that every name in the Indiana Jones game was a trademark of Lucasfilm, so they were protecting Lucasfilm and they didn't think it through. <laughs> so it wasn't them being stupid; it was them actually trying to do the right thing for by a, by a, a business partner. It, it ended up looking stupid. So I, I, I ended up doing a bit of everything. You know, at times I'd be sent down to the warehouse to pack orders and things like that. You know, it just it was just one of those jobs. And, and you were a bit of a troubleshooter as well on the articles, weren't you? Because I know that there's lots of stories of things being pulled at the last minute and uh, that kind of thing. Well, so... there, were, there, were a, there were a few problems with articles occasionally down to the fact that I think it was early days and nobody knew what they were doing. You know, we were learning every issue and all the right were still learning every issue as well they didn't you know things like the modules came out and it was a big surprise to everybody what they were i think people forget how groundbreaking things like the giants modules were and the drow modules a d and d and d and d and and they were a big change it was a step change it was kind of like oh we've moved from just like little scribble drawings on a bit of a bit of graph paper through to having something that looks like a serious product so we would get things in and sometimes they would be written in a very notey way because people had written them for their own use. And then that's not quite what you want to put on a page for somebody else to read. Because your notes make sense to you, but they won't make sense to anybody else. So we had to turn them into something that was kind of readable English and that the rules were followed properly. Um, because although nobody follows rules, if they're honest, they're just using them as guidelines and people roll the dice for the noise. I roll the dice for the noise if I ever run anything. I don't necessarily go with the numbers that are on the dice i go with what's going to be dramatic and keep things moving but the, the rules have to be right at the time of publication if you see what i mean um so that needed somebody to go through and do things with uh, which meant i ended up reading a lot of rule sets well it, it's, it's interesting you, you say that because i always say that this period of rpg history is fascinating because that step change was taking place where people start to realise the potential of making stories rather than just, as you say, moving pieces around on the table. Yes, it's it moved from go in the room, kill everybody, get the treasure, go in the next room, kill everybody, get the treasure, to having a storyline where you were trying to find out what the hell was going on and who the real baddies were. And I think things like the, uh, the British modules, in particular the U-series and the UK ones, really raised the game on that and so did things like Dragonlance as well which had an epic sweep to it which was a was a first in a lot of ways and some of the stuff we were doing in the magazine was interesting because we were, it was it was a small scale so you could try things out and if it went wrong there was going to be another one along next month and people would forget the bad ones hopefully and just remember the good ones 
whether that's true or not, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully they did forget the bad ones because there were one or two that I did looking back, which, you know, weren't great. Um, there were a couple that were quite good. So which are the ones that you're, you're proudest of that appeared in Imagine? Um, I think the ones that worked best. I actually, I actually had to go back and look and find out what I did do on Imagine, by the way, before talking to you. Because uh, I had to do, I had to take on pseudonyms uh, at times. I was told your names. My favourite quote when I was working at work at uh, TSL was, "Your names appearing too bloody often in this magazine." <laughs> <laughs> that was from Keith, the mag- That was from Keith, the, the editor, uh, and he, he was getting a bit worried that he didn't look like we had a broad enough base of people. So, so, uh, so what what were some of the uh, names that you used? Then? Well, actually, I found them. Uh, John Tantoblin, um, a Tantoblin being a poo in medieval slang. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I went. On, I was. I was done on one as as Flashman, on the on the the heading page. It was the 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 thing about oh guilty of court. Uh, yeah, and then right at the end they gave me the correct credit, correct name credit. I never understood that one. And it turns out I had a hand in about uh, twelve of them. Um, the best one I think was probably the Bushido one. Oh yes, because yeah. it was very strange. And there were no undead in Japanese myth, but I managed to get an undead guy, undead guys in there, without violating Japanese myth. The dying words of a monk had cursed them, so they couldn't die. But they still took all the wounds that they were, that were going on, and they had to be stitched back together again with gold thread and things like that. Otherwise, they fell to pieces as the thread rotted. And it was a macabre set of imagery, really, of these guys held together with gold thread, samurai. Drinking or trying to drink themselves to death in the hope of thinking, forgetting how bad everything had got, and it's it's a stra- it's a quite a disturbing image when you put it like that. But it, it works, so I think that one worked. The one that was most fun was definitely getting a writing credit with Michael Moorcock. Yes, of course, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. That was. <laughs> I still I am still chuffed about that. Thirty years later, that I got I got a very small writing credit with Michael Moorcock. You know, because that's just great. So how did that come about? Uh, that was down to Mr. Coburn. I uh, wanted to do. Uh, a Moorcock special and managed to get in touch with Moorcock's publishers, I think. And they weren't averse to the idea and proposed it to Moorcock. And he wasn't, he wasn't available at that point to actually write anything, but he gave us free use of one of his background worlds and sent us his notes, ah, which was the right. Earl Orbeck stuff. Yes. So we, we knew we had the, the, the use of that hero and we had to run past him with everything that we came up with or I came up with. And in the end, I don't think he asked for any changes at all. He was quite pleased with what we'd done, including all the artwork that Jess Goodwin, of all people, the figure designer did back in the day, because he was he was starting out at that point as well, and he did some really nice, more cocky artwork. It is very good. It. Yeah, it's very good, yeah. It's a good scenario. I think I was really... And I got a nice letter from him in the end, actually, to say that he was, he was pleased with it, and he felt it had, it had done the character proud. So I was really pleased with that. Uh, I think that one worked best of all. I was just going to say, it's good to hear that because you always get the sense with Moorcock that he has a bit of a love-hate relationship with the hobby because of things that have happened later. I think he probably, I think he's probably like, uh, this is going to sound terrible, I think he's probably like a few older people, he doesn't maybe get it, it's just possible, you know, (laughs) because it's, it is, he's a he's an extraordinarily good writer. I mean, you, you read... You read his mainstream fiction and it's brilliant. And you read his, his science fiction and his fantasy and it's it's how he was cranking out books at that rate when he was younger, I do not know. You know, it's it's incredible mind and energy in that man and his his inventiveness is superb. He didn't ever get diverted into that kind of hobby games world at all. Uh 
And now, of course, people are coming, going the opposite way and coming out of it. People like Charles Stross started on White Dwarf, writing little articles for White Dwarf. Now, you know, he's writing the Laundry series, novels. And there are others as well. And you, you can see from some people, some people's writing styles, that, yeah, you started playing D&D, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. You did, didn't you? You know, and it, it's kind of, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's great that people draw inspiration from the, the whole sort of, it's, you could break out into a chorus of the circle of life at this point and go, oh, look, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, uh, it is that touch of, of kind of things go round and come round. So I'm not sure that Moorcock, I don't think he was well served by some of the games that came out based on his on his stuff. Some were great. Some of the uh, Chaosium stuff was really, really good. And some of it was kind of like, well, it's all right, but it doesn't look very good. You know, it's, it's like the content is there, but the presentation is not it's not as good as it could be, should we say. I think it's expressed unhappiness as well about how some of the Warhammer imagery borrowed heavily from, from his work. I think he's entitled to a little bit of that, yeah. I mean, I, I freely admit that I read an awful... I read all of Moorcock's books, when, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Just did. And, I've you know, I've still got a few more cooks on the shelf. Now, he was certainly a background influence, but then so was H.P. Lovecraft, and so was Lord Dunsany, and so were, to a lesser extent, people like Tolkien were as well. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that feeds into Warhammer and gets chewed up and spat out the other end of their sausage machine. Yeah. Oh, as in all role-playing games, you know, we, we borrow freely, don't we, and uh, reprocess. Mm. So that's part of the... Uh... Yeah, yeah. It just, it just The way it works is that Sometimes you put something down and you don't know where it's come from. And then later on, you'll see something and you think, that's where it's from. It's from that's that's that idea came from somewhere else, you know, a particular writer. And it's not that you deliberately set out to copy it. It's just that it was in your head somewhere lurking away. And it's true. I think that's true of anybody who's doing anything. I mean, you, you know, movies are notorious for borrowing and homage and I think all role-playing games do little homages to everything. You know, yes. There's, there's little definitely. bits in all role-playing games. And if you, you, you know, I can't say that I was never influenced by Moorcock because I must have been. Because he was my, you know, it was my favourite writer when I was a teenager growing up. Yeah. So, you know, I read Moorcock and Frank Herbert's Dune before I got to Lord of the Rings. Which kind of spoiled Lord of the Rings for me a little bit because it wasn't brutal enough, you know? Oh, it's good to hear that because that was my experience as well. I read all the um, yeah. pulp of uh, Robert E. Howard and uh, Moorcock. Exactly. Yeah. You know, with the action on yeah, ev exactly. ev every other page, and uh... yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know how uh, Robert E. Howard is a case in point. You know that surely is the biggest influence, and so is Edgar Rice Burroughs, but nobody ever credits him because he was there writing. I mean, Princess of Mars, nineteen twelve, it was published. So it's got to have had an influence on later stuff. It can't not. And it's like all the space opera stuff is E. e. Doc Smith, you know, the, the Lensman series. It, it, you know, sp Space Marines are mentioned in the Lensman books. You know, there are these big hulking Space Marine guys all armed with boarding axes, which is, if you think about it, completely insane for spaceships, but sounds cool. When you were mm. doing this work on uh, Imagine, the fanzine scene yeah. was in full swing, you know, uh, gaming fandom. It was, yes. A uh, guy called Pete Tamlin was our sort of fanzine correspondent, if I remember rightly. And Mike Lewis as well, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. Uh, and Mark Gascoigne and Ian Marsh came out of the fanzine thing, scene as well. 
and 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 I've been looking back at some of the stuff that was uh, happening around that time, and it and you mm-hmm. can see the debates around. Um, they, they used to call them Irvings and uh, Monty Hall, and you know, it, this elevation of uh, something called role playing rather than. Uh, you know, constant fights. Yes, yeah. yes, constant fights. So, yes, it was almost like there was two sides to the coin, and you, you were either a role player or you were a hack and slash. Yeah. And there was, you know, what what that uh, yeah what occasionally gets referred to these days as murder hobos. Exactly. I don't yeah. know if you heard. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of like, and I could never understand it because, as far as I was concerned, if you were having fun, you were getting the point of games. You're not. <laughs> if you start going, oh, you're not playing that properly and holding your hand up to your forehead like some kind of fainting violet, then you've kind of missed the point of what you're doing. You're supposed to be having a bit of fun with your mates on a whatever evening it is with either a curry or a beer and, you know, and just enjoying yourselves. And I, I never got this kind of one true purity thing that you had to, you know, you had to role play. Yes. And yeah, no, you had, you, role playing is fine. I, it's great. You role play as much as you like. But remember that other people just want to go in and hack the head off an orc. That's what they're there. That that's their idea of fun. It's like saying you, you can play Monopoly or you can play Monopoly where you've all got a knife. You know, and it's like, and you're not playing one true Monopoly unless you've all got a knife or a gun at the table. And if somebody double crosses you, you can chop their fingers off. And yeah, it's kind of no, that's not fun. Yeah, no, you know? I'm not playing Monopoly with you. <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 <laughs> yeah, no. I I'm not allowed to play Monopoly with my other half. In her, her house, it was definitely water the bread knife with Monopoly. You also made the transition from Imagine to White Dwarf. So how did that come about? Yes. Oh, no, that would be company politics, partly, which I don't really want to go into too much. TSL got very weird towards the end of my tenure there in, in the sort of mid-80s period, 85-ish, because there was a lot of trouble with them running out of money in America and Mr. Gygax being eased out by various factions and the Blooms and the Gygaxes fighting. And then Lorraine Williams arrived and she was going to save the company and then she decided to get rid of Gary and oh, it all got very messy in America. And it was it was kind of a bit dramatic at times with the sweeping changes that were happening. Um, anyway, the UK was told to um, save money, and the way Don chose to that Don Turnbull, the guy who was running the company at the time, uh, chose to save money was to load as many costs as he could onto Imagine, and then shut the magazine down. And uh, it must have looked brilliant on paper, but it meant that five of us lost our jobs. We all, you know, we finished issue thirty. We were called in and given the white envelopes. Uh, we were all redundant, so I assume that redundancy meant redundancy so i said right okay i'm going to pub and um i went well i've finished there you know i've just been given the thank you very much and so long and thanks for all the fish letter what then happened i'm told is that marketing department went where's mike and they all went he's gone well who's going to write the advertising because one of my other jobs i displaced the advertising agency that we were using and i was writing all the advertising for europe (laughs) at that point there was a sort of panicked He's gone to the pub. Well, which pub? We don't know. So they dashed around looking at various pubs to try and find me. And when they did find me, I was sorry a little bit, and I was dragged back and told that um, if I wanted it, I could have a job. So I stayed sacked for about three and a half hours. 
but this was this, this was terrible because everybody else was still given the bullet. So I sat in the editorial office with four empty desks around me for oh months on end, um, writing advertising copy for people. Uh, Paul went off and started Games Master, went to about five or six issues, I think. We helped out on that a little bit, you know, sort of undercover, as it were, by I wrote a couple of things for him under a pseudonym. Um, other people did as well. Uh, TSL put some advertising his way. And then uh, the next thing that happened that moved everything on was Tom decided he was going, and he went to work for Games Workshop, um, which was quite weird because none of, none of us realised that he'd been quite unhappy. And then there was a small expedition mounted to Nottingham by various people, and I tagged along, not expecting to find anything out, and everybody was offered jobs, you know, and I'd, I'd gone, and I don't think they knew really who I was, particularly because I wasn't one of the people who was writing rules material or module material. I was just one of the guys who happened to be at the TSR offices. And did various jobs for them, so I ended up going to the studio. I ended up getting a job at the studio, and I started as uh, assistant white dwarf editor, which wasn't an entirely necessary post, shall we say? I mean, if Paul had carried on being the editor, it would have, you know, he could have done it all on his own. Um, but what happened was, Paul saw me arrive, grinned from ear to ear, and virtually skipped off down the corridor to find something much more interesting to do. And have to get a magazine out every month. So uh, I, I don't blame him at all because he immediately got to do much more. He got to do more interesting things like um, trying to find board games and and, uh, and major publishing things to do. And I uh, I took over from the on the magazine, and uh, it was again luck. I think really <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a formal interview process in that sense. Other than Brian going, oh yeah, I think Brian knew me because I painted toy soldiers for a few years. And I knew him through Citadel, and getting getting you know getting model soldiers off it. Beyond that, I don't really think they knew who who I was or what I could do, particularly other than I'd had a job at TSR, so I must have been okay because they wouldn't have kept me on otherwise. I ended up working for Workshop for what about four years, four and a half, five years. Left in the end of ninety. And, and during that period, um, White Dwarf changed, mm. didn't it? Quite significantly, it it, it became bigger yes, and. Covered more games and had a well, different a appearance. Of, yeah, there were quite a lot of things went on. The first thing was that the move from London had not been without problems. Hello, my name is Neil Hopkins, also known as Thermal Satsuma over on Twitter. Dirk recognised my name from some old fanzines and asked me to contribute to this episode with my first, my last, my everything. So here we go. To set the scene, it's 1979 and I'm on my paper round for school. A magazine bundled in with the newspapers caught my eye. It was called Military Modelling and between the painting guides for Napoleonic soldiers and Sherman tanks was an advert for a game called Tunnels and Trolls. The rule book was £3.50 if I recall correctly about the same as my weekly earnings, but I think I just bought the Goblin Lake solo adventure on its own first, and then the rules a few weeks later. It was mind-blowing. I was that goblin, exploring Fishquish Lake and meeting many untimely deaths before finally escaping with the treasure. I told my friends at school about it and started mapping out dungeons on graph paper in the back of my maths book for them to explore. 
We soon moved on to AD&D with side excursions into RuneQuest Traveller and later on Call of Cthulhu. Before too long, my friend Dave Hulks suggested starting a fanzine and came up with the appropriately alliterative name of Quasits and Quasars because it had the bold ambition of having something for everyone with a mix of sci-fi and fantasy. My job was to write the solo adventures, which seemed to be a popular attraction for a lot of gamers without a regular group to play with. This was in the days when word processors and desktop publishing were a distant pipe dream, so everything was carefully typed on an old second-hand typewriter and carefully assembled into presentable pages with letter set titles and illustrations cut and pasted into place. The whole lot was sent off to the printers and after a week or so we'd get back a big box of loose pages to collate and staple into the finished product. It was actually pretty good if I say so myself. We lasted for 10 issues including a team up with the venerable dragon lords and made many friends in the zine scene before we went off to different universities and eventually lost touch as real life intervened but that's another story. My last game was recently part of the virtual grog meet with a session of the Cthulhu Hack run by Sean Smith. This was my first experience of an online game like this and after a few technical glitches everything ran smoothly. We were playing as a group of old school chums who'd been invited to a performance of The King in Yellow and needless to say things rapidly became very strange indeed. I just about escaped with my life but unfortunately not my sanity. It was a thoroughly enjoyable way to play a game with minimal rules and dice rolling handled through a web app and I'm keen to try something similar again. My everything is a little more difficult to summarise. A few years ago I bought myself a copy of the Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition box set complete with miniatures and pre-generated characters in a beginner's adventure. Not having a gaming group to hand I roped my family into play and we had a great time. Particular highlights were sparing a goblin who turned out to be a valuable, if somewhat unreliable, ally and a member of the Goblin Revolutionary Army, and a green dragon with an obsessive-compulsive need to count every piece of treasure in his hoard. As the game went on, I realised that I wasn't really paying attention to the rules, but rather letting the story develop as it went on, only occasionally rolling the dice behind the screen and sucking my teeth or saying, yes, that worked, as fitted the story. So, my everything then is games as stories. They are frameworks for our imagination, allowing us to collaborate on something together and often producing results that we could never have foreseen. I have been experimenting with writing some more interactive fiction using a tool called Twine, and I've also discovered a Tunnels and Trolls Facebook group with an ongoing game, where I am now a hob rogue exploring a dungeon with a group of fellow adventurers. It's great fun. So, thanks again for inviting me on the podcast, Dirk, and I hope to be able to play games and weave stories with you sometime in the future. Cheerio. Right, I'm heading down the garden. Ah, the glorious 50th birthday shed is still there, still looking resplendent. I'll uh, just give a knock. Come in. Hello there, Ed. Hello there, Dirk. I believe you've been going to that uh, fancy London. The old smoke. Yeah, yeah I found my way through the smog. <laughs> To the Waterstones in London, to be honest. And, and to meet a hero? My only hero. When Eddie met Geddy. <laughs> or Jeddy. And how did that go? Very well, thank you. I, I had about three seconds with the man himself. I was whisked away. <laughs> <laughs> the restraining <laughs> order. You don't get along. You don't get along on these meets. No. What did you say to him then? Uh, I just said I've spent 
best part of my teenage years trying to learn his damn bass lines. <laughs> and he had a good chuckle of that, and then I was escorted out <laughs> rather promptly. <laughs> Under restraint. Under restraint by the security. <laughs> nice one. Well, in this episode, we're looking at a White Dwarf. Yeah. And uh, we've got the return of the bargainometer, because if people mm. want to get their uh, White Dwarves and restore their collection, yeah. uh, I thought I'd come to you to find out how much uh, things cost. Okay. Well, first of all, did you subscribe to White Dwarf? Did you get it on a regular basis? No. I was, I was too, more pragmatic than that. I, I find White Dwarf was, was really good. But not every not every issue was really good, so I pick and chose what I liked. Usually, someone else at the beginning, Herbs would bring it into school because he bought it every month, and then I'd, if it was really really decent issue, I'd then go and buy it. If it wasn't, I didn't. I think I probably only bought about ten issues in the whole. Really, hundred, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's uh, it. It's worth saying that, isn't it? That you know. We w- wouldn't be sitting in this shed no. if it wasn't for uh, White Dwarf. That's right. <laughs> Even though you only live around the corner. It's amazing we never bumped into each other in Bardell's toys or anything. <laughs> Considering we were always in there. <laughs> yeah, so it was a small ad in uh, in White Dwarf yeah. uh, that brought us together with uh, you, Herbs, Winnie and Swab. Yeah. And, uh, and evolved we're... missing teeth and a hat with a feather in it. Just straight out of the fantasy tale, but it's true. So, so tell the story, because I love this story. So what happened? I think it was a... I'm not quite sure if it was the second time we went. So the first time we knocked on Blythe's door, there was about three or four of us, and uh, he wasn't in. So then we all went back round to my house, which was, as we said, round the corner. Uh, must have spent a couple of hours there. I don't know whether we played a game or just chatted, listening to records and what have you, and then... Herbs and another lad, or two others, headed home. And en route, <laughs> Herbs used to, to, to add to this, Herbs used to wear a hat, brimmed hat with a feather in it. Uh, and on his way home, some of the roguish types shouted across the road, why are you wearing that hat? To the, to the guy who wasn't wearing the hat, Harris he was called. And Harry said, I don't know, ask him, pointing to Herbert. And at that moment, a fist shot out and caught Harris square on the teeth and knocked one of his prized front teeth out. And anyway, I think I don't know whether they ran off or just carried on walking and they made it out alive. Yeah. Welcome and, to Bolton. <laughs> welcome to Bolton, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great lever. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So, very memorable. And, of course, you turned up and um, Blythe was in. And we went on the hunt for a man with a feather in his hat <laughs> all over the place. That's what we were looking for, because uh, Blythe's mum said, yeah, there's a chap with a feather in his hat. And we said, We've seen a man with a feather in his hat. It was like something out of Jack Vance, <laughs> looking for a man with, with a, a feather, feather in his hat. And um, meet on the market square. <laughs> So you never found him, did you? We never found him, no. no. But it, it was a few months later, wasn't it, that we uh, got together? I think we... I don't know why we didn't go back round early. I think it's just... You do it once and you think... You, you're not gained anything, but you're not lost anything. So you shrug your shoulders and... Other than a tooth. Other than a tooth, yeah. <laughs> you got a replacement, false one. Which you, I, I presume he wears to this day. <laughs> 
So, uh, White Dwarfs, you didn't have many of them, so which no. ones uh, stand out for you? I suppose if it was to pick, you know, three, probably the first one I got was the uh, the Barroom Brawl one, which was White Dwarf 33, which is what you're featuring in your yeah. chat of it. That was the first one I ever got. First even one I got been, as well. Though. Even though I've been reading it for a while, because Herbs used to get it and he'd lend it to me, that was the first one I went out to buy. I think it's because it had a RuneQuest scenario in, and by that time we were just... When we started playing RuneQuest, we never looked back, so every other... If it was a and d issue, I wouldn't bother buying it. So I, to me, if it had something RuneQuest in, I'd buy it, and that one had the scenario in. I don't know whether I hoped to run it, because it, it was just a brawl, as it said, but I, I mainly got it for the statistics. Yeah. So I could use them in other scenarios if I wanted to because you never had any statistics unless you'd bought a big campaign pack and for like 60p or whatever it was you got like a 20 statistics that you could use in something you was writing at the time well I don't know whether I did but that's how many times is Malop died the, uh, <laughs> the lunar <laughs> guy yeah. well I say it was a lunar guy you could kind of scratch his name and use all the statistics as many times as you want so it was that's how I viewed it the utility of the thing not well, yeah. the, the magazine. I mean, I wasn't interested in town planning. I mean, <laughs> I've realised as well by uh, reading that issue thirty-three. That's the one where they talk about invisibility, and we used to have this uh, debate about invisibility in uh, RuneQuest. And it's got Greg Stafford saying he doesn't he allow doesn't it. Use it. He didn't lose it in his game. I wonder whether we picked up on that. I don't remember reading that article. Maybe I did, but we never used it for some reason. Us together and, and was, when I was playing with the lads at school it we'd have a I don't know why it never came in our radar to use it I don't yeah. know it, it, was it a four point spell or something so it was quite a yeah. a hefty spell to have you know hard to get hold of uh, but because it is quite disruptive isn't it yeah and I remember you having in your rule book um, under pixies not invisible you wrote it in I'm sure Did I? in pen yeah yeah, How do you remember this stuff? I'm sure you've got <laughs> copies of my stuff somewhere in your house. <laughs> I'm not admitting to anything. Yeah, because yeah, he says in the uh, article that it's uh, Aldrimi, Aldrimi, uh myth that uh, pixies, pixies. propaganda that pixies are, are invisible. invisible. Yeah. Maybe that's why I transferred it to my real book. But, uh, yeah. Well, I said, was it not in the errata of the. Possibly, possibly. What, what, what other uh, issues? Uh, I think, well, after that, I think it was a bit of a... I didn't buy many after that for a while, but then it got into the stage where it was publishing the Call of Cthulhu scenarios, and it went through a, maybe about 10... From about 50. Now, I have difficulty pinpointing one of my favourite ones around that time, but I do have a soft spot for 50, which is the Watcher to Walberswick, which is the very first scenario we played. Or Herbert ran it at school, and, uh, and that's got, got us all really into it. I don't know, there's something about that scenario, it's a very basic scenario, but there's something quite, you know, emotive to me. It's, uh, I think it's the atmosphere in a fishing village on the, you know, the east coast of England or something. It's quite slightly different to the normal Cthulhu scenarios where it's gangsters and 1920s America. It's just more eerie. Uh, and I think that showed its full potential, really, is that kind of like a horror game. So I have a soft spot for 50, but... There's a few around that era that uh, I think the Black Brew of Dice Skunks going, oh, which yeah. is another good one. And that's probably one that I did, did have at the time because it had several things in. 
It had the scenario for RuneQuest, uh, but it also had a few other things in there, which was a D&D &D scenario, which I could have utilised, but it also had a traveller thing in as well. And the good thing about White Dwarf, it had a lot of absolutely excellent traveller scenarios in. So if it, if, it, if it coincided with a decent RuneQuest one, or a Cthulhu one, with a decent traveller scenario, then I would buy it. Do you know what I mean? You never yeah. have two RuneQuest or two Cthulhu. You'd always have one or the other. I never really bothered about D&D. &D. So if it ticked two or three boxes, then I would buy that issue. Yeah. You know, especially if it was a Cthulhu scenario. In fact, most of the ones I got was a Cthulhu scenario. One was with a Cthulhu scenario in. You know, the Bleeding Stone of Ipthar and what, what yeah. number was that? Is it 60? I remember buying that one. Yeah. You know, because I think that's the first one I ran for you lot, I think. Yeah, you did. Yeah. 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 I don't think I'd run, ran one before then. And so if you were going to recover it in your collection now, how yeah. much did it cost on average? I think the, the price increase is the lower the, the number. So if you're going, you know, if you're wanting anything, anything after the 60th issue, you can probably get for about a fiver. Uh, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more. Uh, when this drop below 60, in the 30s, 40s and 60s, uh, you're probably talking between a fiver and a tenner. Yeah. The nearer to fiver you get it for, it's a bargain. And anything below 30 is anybody's guess. Uh, I mean, 30s to the tens, you, you probably take 10 to 20 quid. And then, then if, you, if you're getting the single finger issues, you, you can pay silly money for them. Yeah. I mean, you could put 30, 40 quid, I've seen them for. But I wouldn't buy them, personally, because no. they're rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> You know, unless you're a completionist who wants to get every single issue, but I'm not interested in some of the articles, which were mainly D and D in the very early days. Yeah. Uh, to me, the heart, the the main highlight of the White Dwarf, the best era was around about the thirty to to seventy issue. Yeah. You know, although there's some crackers after that. I mean, that we we went snob or I went snobby when they started pumping it full of Warhammer. I was, I'd go in what uh, W. H. Smith and sniff my way through the magazine and, and think it's all Warhammer. Yeah. I'm not going to buy that. But there were some cracking things. The Judge Dread scenarios were good in there, and the uh, what was it? There was a Stormbringer one right at the end of the hundreds, yeah, weren't yeah. there? But, which uh, completely missed because they weren't laughs laughs Madcap laughs, yeah. Yeah. yeah, which we never picked up on. I don't remember seeing that at the time. Yeah, yeah. I was had longer then and was too busy into. Booze and women. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, booze and women. Thanks a lot. Okay, <laughs> my pleasure. See you later. See you then. Hey everyone, Baz off of the Smart Party Podcast here. Just to let you know, I've written a role-playing game. It's called The King of Dungeons. It's live on Kickstarter right now until the campaign closes on the 14th of July. If you like dungeoning, dragoning, questing for runes tunnelling, trolling or even gurping, then there's something for you to love in King of Dungeons. Create your adventuring guild and fight for the right to undertake lucrative charters in a world full of deadly dungeons, vicious villains and roving rivals. Supply your own alliterative analogies and become the King of Dungeons. See kickstarter.com forward slash project forward slash King of Dungeons for pledge levels, previews and promises. The value of adventurers can go up as well as down. Advantage and disadvantage can apply. No time wasters must have own pony seat back a pack for encumbrance details. Attic attack! Welcome to the attic, where we're surrounded by the relics from gaming's past. It's it's like that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark or 
a car boot sound, one of those car boot sounds, but not with those uh, litre bottles of bleach and high-vis jackets. It's nothing like a car boot sound. I've got a blighty with me. Hello, Dirk. Hello. Did you get through that hatch all right? I managed to, yeah. yeah I think I'm putting on weight. <laughs> oh, is the hatch getting smaller? It's right? getting smaller. It's getting smaller. It's either, healing. It's either healing or sealing. One it's of a shrink the... spell. It is. That's what it is. There's no way we're getting bigger. No, no absolutely not. That's unheard of. So it's been great, hasn't it? Over the last few weeks, we've been looking through mm. White Dwarf magazine. Because it was so important to us, it was like the centre of our yes. role-playing. Yes, it was. And normally we outsource it to the Daily Dwarf, so it's good for us just to sit down and it look at it. It is good for us to look at it, and it's interesting as well to look through them in a methodical and chronological way, whereas normally when I look through old copies, I just pick any old copy and flick through. Yeah. But to look at them chronologically is quite interesting. You can and see where you got into it, you can see where you start buying it, you can see where there's gaps in the collection. You think, I know why. And more than that as well, this is really nostalgic because it takes you back to that moment and time when you actually got that issue. Yes, yeah. Just looking at it at the cover, just yeah. going through the adverts yeah. and seeing it, it's like hearing a piece of music. You're getting the sights mm. and sounds yeah, does, yeah, of yeah. a particular moment when it yeah. arrived. Yes, yeah. You can tie it back to particular time points in your life when it arrived when it arrived when we subs because we subscribed didn't we we did subscribe we did subscribe to it for, for uh, I think the first one I got first subscription copy was the one with Judge Dredd on the front yeah that was the one I got subscription and it's yeah. always good because you got it a little bit earlier didn't you yes because it wasn't available in the newsagents to begin with it you could just get it from Games Workshop stores yeah so we used, to, we used to buy it from Games Workshop um, but then as a Christmas present I asked my mum and dad if I could have a subscription to it um, and that was good because you, you got it a little bit earlier than everybody else um, yeah. and otherwise you had to have a trip to Manchester to is Odyssey 7 stock yet? I think Odyssey 7 might have I think they did it, yeah and obviously Games Workshop but yeah you couldn't buy it in the newsagents no, no. not at all and it came in a substantial brown envelope didn't it it was a nice thick envelope it felt <laughs> there was that thrill of getting it through it was, it was a thrill because I think as well there was a sense of a conversation with the outside world when, when you got it it was these other people out there that you, you, were, you weren't talking to them but they were talking to you through the articles and the letters and you thought oh there's life out there other people play these games not, not just me and you and a few friends we've roped in now, the thing of having a discussion about White Dwarf, there's just so much stuff, yes, isn't there? Yeah, so there is, actually. It's slightly to... overwhelming, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to set some rules, but okay. just pass them over to me. So they're in that box over there, Golden Wonder box. <laughs> Golden Wonder? Golden Wonder. Where salt and vinegar, crisps, crisps uh, chips, if you're in America, crisps, mm. uh, they, they were blue, weren't they? Salt and vinegar was blue. Oh, Yes. And cheese and onion was green. Yes. And then walkers came along. And swapped the colours. Swapped the colours, like a regime change. Yeah, isn't it? It, was all, it, it threw you a bit, that, as a kid. You'd, yeah. buy, you'd buy some green, a green bag of walkers, and you'd think, what's this? Yeah. It's salt vinegar. There's some mistake in the packaging factory. But do, do you not think that it, it should uh, fill us with hope that regimes can change, that, that orthodoxies the, can the, change? Well, for better or worse, though, I mean, you say it can change, it can change the other way. There's nothing wrong with the blue-green thing, was there? I'm still a bit slightly annoyed by it. Oh, yeah. I, still, I still think, come on. 
<laughs> cheese and onion. Somehow cheese and onion should be green. Yeah. I mean, you get green cheese. Onions can be green. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why salt and vinegar should be blue? I don't know. I think all of it's a bit abstract. Do you think you know, it's, yeah, it's... It's like cultural coding, though, isn't it? You know yeah. what I mean? It does, does mean something. I like to take... Uh, I, I think it's a good thing. It shows that things can change, you know what yeah. I mean? I once saw a TV show about crisps. Do you know, do you know why, you, when you were a kid, it was only certain brands of crisps in your area? When you went somewhere else on your holiday, they, you couldn't get them. I think it's something to do with the, the packaging technology. They couldn't make them last long enough, so it was very localised. It was only in the packaging technology when, you know, they, they managed to keep them fresh that people like Walkers moved in on Golden Wonders territory. It's kind of crisp wars. Really? That's, that... what, that's what he said, yeah. I don't know how much truth there is in that. So globalisation has hit the... Well, I don't know if globalisation going a bit far, isn't it? Because when you go on holiday to Spain or wherever, you can't get... You just get plain crisps. Yeah. It's a British obsession, I think, the crisps, isn't it? Yeah. All the different flavours. We've already oh. talked a bit too much about it. Oh, it's, it's more interesting what we usually talk about, isn't it? I'm bored of role-playing. Can we talk about crisps instead? Yeah. Let's talk about crisps. Forget this. White dwarf. What? <laughs> so I've set some rules... Um, I set some rules. So what we're going to do is each pick uh, three things. So one scenario, okay, one article, yeah, and one oddity. Oddity, yeah, oddity, oddity. Well, okay. you know, some, something that you found unusual. Okay, and, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And scenarios are interesting, aren't they? Because it's a bit of a moth memory, mm. a bit of a moth memory. Yes. Because I assumed because. The titles are in common currency, like Sable Rose Affair, and yeah. all, all the names of them, you know them, they're very familiar. But I don't think we played that many of them. No, we didn't. Um, and I think there, were, there was a reason for that. One, one reason was they didn't always fit with your campaign. So in yeah. those days, the one shot wasn't really a thing. We, we would do campaigns and you'd read the scenario and then think mm, mm, it's alright but it doesn't quite fit um, I think the other reason more, more sort of pedestrian reason was we all read the magazine so you read it people yeah. it was always a thing though people have read it you know yeah even though we had the uh, prime directive which meant that you couldn't uh, if you were a games master you only knew on the game mm. there was always a sneaking suspicion that everybody else had read it yeah yeah, and, and even if you hadn't read it, you, you'd cast your eye over some of the... It's very difficult to flick past the scenario and not spot the stats or not spot a picture of a monster or not spot something in the title that gave something away. Yeah. So there was that problem as well. I mean, I don't think I... I didn't sit there and read the RuneQuest scenarios that you could have run. But at the same time, if there was a picture of a scorpion man or a brew, you'd think, oh, there you go. I know there's one of those in it. And so there was always a brew. There's, there's always, always a brew, brew yeah. It goes <laughs> without saying, I suppose. I think as well that there was uh, that thing where we weren't bold enough to change stuff. So when yeah. you when you saw yeah. something, you would read it and think, oh, no, I don't like that. I remember I remember yeah. one of the NPCs having a Power Stories Crystal 15. I thought, nope, they're not having no, that. Can't. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't knock the one off and make it Power Storage 5. No. <laughs> Somehow you just stopped at that yeah. point. Dismissed yeah. the entire thing. Yeah, there. I think we did do that in the early days. You, yeah. It was it was an as read thing, wasn't it? As a sort of oh well, that that says this, so and I don't like that, so well, I won't run it. Yeah, it, well, yeah. there was a bit of that to it. Yeah. 
And the other thing was, was this feeling, this sense, and we used to feel it all the time, that you had to have huge parties to do stuff. So they assumed that yes, you had... Yes, it was. It was a, an adventure for... Um, five to ten people. Five to ten players or something like that, <laughs> wasn't it? And you think, There's who, who are these people? Who are these people who know ten people? Ten people to play these games. I can't, you know, this dozen brought people in who, who don't really want to play, but we make them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit like that, yeah. Because, <laughs> so, again, we, the, the idea of playing more than one character is an odd thing. I mean, I always remember an article by Lewis Pulsifer, yeah. who I'm sure we'll come on to. Yeah, I'm sure we will. We're sure we will. Who um, said something about, you know, a typical D&D, because it was AD&D, wasn't it? So advanced. Advanced for Lewis, of course. Um, party was something like, you know, seven fighters, four clerics four magic users and two thieves and you'd think but what you know but I think what he meant was you would play several characters like a war game yes that was the mentality but to us it was the idea was you played one character and that character was almost like you and therefore you couldn't play more than one so how do you get four, five, six, seven, eight people to play these scenarios and why do all yeah so yeah, so playing these scenarios, a bit of a moth memory, and if you don't know what moth memory is, that's, we call things a moth memory when it's unreliable, because we always assumed that we were playing with a moth-tarking figure back in the 70s, but there wasn't one made until no, the 90s. No, it wasn't made, yeah. So, if, if it's an unreliable memory, it's a moth memory. A dodgy memory. <laughs> okay, so let you, I'm going to let you start first, so what's, right. your, what's your scenario? My scenario is... From issue 41, I believe, The Snowbird Mystery by Andy Slack, which is a traveller adventure. Linked to an article as well in the same issue, the Covert Survey Bureau, which was like a secret uh, sort of MI6-style organisation that worked for the Imperium. Right. Um, and it's a strange thing, I'd forgotten, until I started flicking through them again in this methodical way, I'd forgotten that I ran this. And uh, I don't feel as bad now because I'd forgotten that I'd played in it. I know, it, it's odd, isn't it? We, we played so much, Dan, I suppose it's easy to do. But the Snowbird Mystery is a scenario about uh, a ship that goes missing and the ship has some uh, combat drug, a combat drug known as YAG, which uh, kind of boosts mar Space Marines' endurance uh, and stamina, but it's highly addictive. Um, and I think what I remember about it was I thought it sounded like, it sounded like a great adventure it sounded something properly science fiction you know this super drug that was addictive and I think when you, you found the drug you just took the drug and I couldn't quite as a games master then cope with the idea that it was highly addictive and for future games you'd be addicted it seemed like an inconvenience then it was a bit like oh, why have they done that now they've done that I have to incorporate this drug addiction into now, now nowadays I would relish that that would yeah, be fantastic yeah. and this is how our, our role playing styles change nowadays I would think that's oh, brilliant I've got them yeah. I've got them in the palm of my hand they're addicted to a drug I can play that for all it's worth but back then I didn't quite know and I remember thinking oh it's God, an inconvenience it's an inconvenience now yeah. so I think your next adventure you were cured of you've been, you've been to the <laughs> traveller equivalent of the priory <laughs> you were cured <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's one of those again it was always this thing in White Dwarf in the early days there was a lot of stuff for Traveller and it was always really really useful but some, again some of the scenarios 
never quite worked. Sometimes because they didn't feel quite science fiction enough. You know, yeah. there's another one I ran, part of it, called Skyrig, and that was good because it had this kind of energy eating. It was on a space station, and there were, it was a sort of infestation of energy eating aliens, which again felt like something you would want to do with a science fiction. I remember game. the artwork of that, you know, you mm. were saying earlier that it was very familiar, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, the Snowbird Mystery um, by Andy Slack. Andy Slack did loads of stuff for travel. Yeah. You know, and there was loads of stuff for Traveller, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, because of the, uh, you know, the, the rule that we had, the Prime Directive, I, I ran Traveller. So it was really, it's really invaluable resource, White Dwarf, because Traveller, notoriously, had very little to go on in the rule books, you know. Yeah. But White Dwarf produced lots and lots of stuff. Well, the one I've got is... Um, Troubles at Embertrees by Paul Vernon. And I'll, I'll go a bit into the story, but the, the main reason I picked this is the story around it. Because as we've said before, because of the Prime Directive, we were never allowed to play D&D because Simon had the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yeah, so we, we were only players, were we? He, he, only he could run it. Only he could run it. He parked the, his tank on the lawn of, uh, <laughs> of D&D. <laughs> And meant that we couldn't play it for a long period of time. Yes. But he only had the Dungeon Master's Guide, therefore we had a very limited yeah. idea of what we could do. It was like it was less that he had a D and D, and more like he was holding it hostage. Yeah. Or at least one of the family members hostage. So yeah, he, he had the Dungeon Master's Guide. So that that was enough. He had it at knife point. You couldn't buy. You couldn't go out and buy a player's handbook because he had Dungeon Master's Guide. That was enough. And it very much like a, a torture situation, wasn't it? Because. <laughs> <laughs> Normally when we played, we would be in his bedroom, and we've explained this before, we would be on the floor, sitting on the floor with our yeah. backs to the radiator, yeah. like yeah. Terry Wayne. It was that high, yeah, yeah. hostage situation. <laughs> and he would be sat in an elevated position on his chair, mm. plucking at his feet uh, as he was describing situations to us, doing the... Uh, uh, People that. may prefer it we go back onto the crisps. Um <laughs> <laughs> But for this one, Troubles and Embertries, I always remember it because we did it downstairs. We did it downstairs in the dining room. The dining room, the dining room table. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. And I remember him building it up, this uh, this story. And it is very atmospheric. I'm reading it now. I can Mm. see how it captures his imagination because it's an investigation in a a medieval-type land it's very evocative and you can see how it's like a forerunner to um, Warhammer you know it's that kind of um, bucolic surroundings with um, grim and perilous things going on yes and uh, of course this was further developed into um, Starstone which is a supplement that was done by Northern Sages um, which was always advertised, wasn't it? You mm. always saw it advertised. Yeah, we can see the artwork now. Yeah. So it's a, it is an intriguing um, mystery about villagers going missing and the horror, and uh, it goes into um, the, the, the situation. And I remember it very vividly, but I remember that we couldn't do anything. Oh, no. no. We weren't allowed to do anything. No, no. Because we weren't allowed to fight anything. No. Well, you didn't have the player's handbook, so you didn't, didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and when I think about it, it now, we dismissed him um, back then. 
but really it was like a forerunner of like a, a narrative game because he was clearly playing out this yes. version yeah, of yeah, a story yeah. mm. um, that was presented but we were, we were just like listening to him I just remember listening <laughs> to him <laughs> yes it's true that yeah. we weren't allowed to do anything can we go and speak to him no <laughs> It's <laughs> a bad narrative game, you know. Just you saying like it was just a story. It's just like a story. I think he just read it to us, didn't he? I he just read the scenario it. to us. And but I think what was was interesting about it was, and I and this is is relevant to our experience of White Dwarf, which I'll come on to in a minute. But we we tolerated it because we were both quite fascinated by advanced Dungeons and yeah, Dragons. Yeah. Because the Prime Directive meant we couldn't. You had RuneQuest, I had Traveller, I bought Stormbringer. I, I bought one or two other fantasy games, which was to get round the Prime Directive, but we couldn't have. And we've talked about this before, haven't we? But it meant that we were very, very attentive in that game because we, we thought we're going to get a glimpse here of what it means, what, how it works as a game. you know. And it was only later when I bought basic D&D in my uh, find a legal loophole that we started to understand it and it was one of the problems with White Dwarf White Dwarf had a lot a lot of AD&D stuff and one of the difficulties was you would read the AD&D stuff and you couldn't really convert it to your own system because you, you didn't quite understand it did you I remember thinking what does chaotic good mean yeah. chaotic bad yeah how come this guy's got so many hit points? What does armour class mean? How come low armour class? Not powerful monsters seem to have a lower armour class. Surely the higher armour, the better. And all those things, and I think when we played Elm Trees, we were just thinking, here we go, here we go, it's going to be a glimpse into the world of advanced D&D. And we didn't. No, we didn't, we didn't. <laughs> and I remember very vividly having a nightmare that featured the Elm Trees chasing me round my nan's house. <laughs> <laughs> and as I, as, I read, as I read it, I thought, I'm, go, I'm going to have to do this. And I, I'm very keen at some point to revive this. I think we should mm. uh, run it again and see if you can remember <laughs> it. Yeah. But yeah, Trouble at Empatries, a great scenario. Okay, what's your uh, article? Well, my article, again, I, I'm afraid it's a traveller one. And it's from, the earliest, it's from the earliest issue that I owned. So I didn't buy this when it came out, but it was the, the issue number 16. And it's by Trevor Graver. And it's alternative careers for traveller. Um, and it's kind of criminal careers, sort of pirate, assassin, con man, that kind of thing. It's already making traveller more exciting. And that was it. That's exactly it. And I think the reason that I've got issue 16 is because it, must, it was obviously a back issue that I must have seen. I think when I saw it, that article, I thought, that's for me. I mean... I mean, because because suddenly you don't have to be in the navy or the merchants or the this or the that. Because that was that problem with travellers. It's very sort of weirdly conformist that you had to join the army or the marines yeah. or the navy or the merchants. You think he wants to be that? He wants to be a, a space pirate? There's an article about that, and I think again a lot of travel, a lot of the traveller articles in White Dwarf were doing that. They were trying to make Traveller more interested and more there's articles on androids, articles on droids, articles on better weapons. There's all these articles in White Dwarf and essentially the, the subtext of them is Traveller's a bit boring, isn't it? Why not do this? It's more interesting. Traveller's a bit boring. Why not have some rules about being a space pirate? Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
I mean, that's why it was such an important magazine. And did it? Inc- I've not seen this one. Is this? Is this where you could take people through the careers in entirety, or was it just like hints of the careers? No, no, it, it had like career tables, oh, like, like the uh, like in the rule book. Yeah, it had the kind of little tables of. We must have gone through them. We must I, I'm sure we did. I think we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think space pirates. Yeah, it was essentially the the premise of it was what about people who dodge the draft but turn to a life of crime you know they, they would obviously have some kind of skill base and career as a you know yeah. you just jump dodge the draft jump on a ship and become a space pirate you're eventually not killed you're going to pick up some skills aren't you now they dodge the draft and become president anyway we'll move on that's a bit of politics there and <laughs> uh, my article in this early when you read these old versions now you you can tell that some of the writing is quite pedestrian, isn't it? Mm. You can see that people are trying to find a voice to become uh, RPG writers. Yeah. But there was always one name that you could, I could rely on, probably you with Andy's like, Dave Morris. When you saw Dave Morris had written an article, you knew that it was going to be good. So it wasn't going to just give you the yeah. bones of a situation or give you some background and hope that you'll fit it in in some way. Yeah. But his Dealing with Demons oh, yeah, yeah. series... That's a classic, isn't it, that? It's absolute classic because it's not only it mechanically deals with summoning demons, mm. the rituals involved, the bargaining and all that kind of thing. So all that in its own is inspiring stuff, isn't it? But it, it, it just bristles with ideas and uh, different mm. directions. And the thing I remember about it a lot, and there was a couple of articles that he did. He mentioned Quest World because it was all done for RuneQuest. Yeah. And by that time, you know, I would, we were finding it difficult with Glorantha, but this was, it seemed like a great opportunity to have an alternative world where you, didn't, you weren't constrained by. And I think as well, it, it felt magical as well. Yeah. Summoning demons felt a more magical thing that, yeah. as we've said many times, and people have said, sometimes in RuneQuest Glorantha, there was always a lack that magic felt a bit more it was kind of commonplace so almost not magic at all yeah whereas summoning a demon was felt more like being a wizard really and and as I say when you read it if you read it now ideas adventure ideas will start coming in your head yeah yeah because it's just that thing of researching or trying to find something to bargain with Mm. um, making sure you get it the details right and otherwise it can backfire on you all those things that instantly start popping things into your head, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And then um, it was done over three issues, and some of the descriptions that he gives us, some of the uh, lesser demons are great. So the uh, Sarium, a giant maggot with spiders' legs that mm. spits out acid. Brilliant, you know, brilliant, <laughs> yeah. brilliant stuff. But yeah, dealing with demons is an absolute classic. It was very popular at the time. Yeah. People, people liked it a lot, didn't they? And it has a warning at the end, don't go summoning in these every week. You know. As if we would. You know, it, it's gonna say you'll upset the balance of your world if you letting these into your lives every week. <laughs> well you like you sort of think you might get eaten by one of them if you keep doing that. Yeah. Your luck's gonna run out, isn't it? That was kind of the point really, wasn't it? <laughs> 
Uh, but once you've started summoning demons, there's no going back, is I guess. Well, it's getting the right thing bargain. I mean, don't don't give it a green bag of crisps. It thinks it's cheese and onion. It's a fatal mistake, isn't it? Yeah. The demon says, "I'd like a box of cheese and onion crisps," and you buy all oh, these these green and they're cheese and onion, aren't they? What? Cause... So, what have you got as your auditor? My auditor is, is an article called "On On Guard" by Gary Drabwell from issue sixty-two. And it, it covers parrying in advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, brilliant. And I love, I love it, this, because I think it sums up the, what was going on in gaming then. Because it's uh, essentially what it does, it says, uh, in D&D, when characters are attacked, they've got armour and they've got dexterity. Okay. But they don't have any uh, capacity to parry with the sword. So it says, um, what happens if someone's cornered, a low-level character's cornered by a monster and has to hold out? And what if he decides to just parry? He's just going to be defensive until his mates arrive or down the corridor. That's the scenario. Right, OK. Um, and it comes up with a really quite convoluted <laughs> way of doing it, where you get so many points for your class, so many points for your strength, so many points for your dexterity, etc., etc., which works into a percentage that you think you'd have to roll over rather than under uh, to parry. And it, it's quite convoluted and quite funny when you look at 5th edition D&D that says you can choose to dodge, which means you, your opponent gets disadvantage on the roll, as simple as that. But what, what I think is fascinating about it is it's of its time. And what is clearly going on there is the kind of discussions we had where when we did open up the box of AD&D that was one of the questions we immediately asked because we've been brought up on RuneQuest and yeah. I'd love to know whether Gary Drabwell played a lot of RuneQuest yeah. as well because we immediately thought in RuneQuest you can parry where's the rules for parrying yeah. in D&D and in D&D it's all abstracted isn't it it's so, abstracted and it was that kind of clash of gaming cultures of abstracted gaming versus simulationist and instead of going d and is just d and that's the way the game works. It's an abstract system. What they've done is, this will not do, this will not stand. I'm going to have to invent a parrying rule, and in doing so, invent another convoluted rule for advanced D&D. Yeah. But it is so, it is so, it exemplifies so much what was going on in White Dwarf, that people were coming up with their own rules, their own crazy ideas yeah. of how to change systems. Well, I've been looking at some uh, fanzines and there was one uh, in Quasits and Quasars where they were putting hit locations into Tunnels and Trolls and that was really, really complicated. Yeah. And it just yeah. breaks it, doesn't it? Because it breaks it and the modern, the modern attitude, our, our attitude now, and that, that would have been our attitude then. Yeah. We would have had those questions in our mind. But the modern attitude now is, no, TNT is like that. It, that's how it works yeah. as a game. It doesn't have hit locations. It's doing something different from yeah. RuneQuest, and D&D is doing something different. But back in the day, everyone was seeking, and this is what's interesting to compare then with now. It's almost like then, through White Dwarf and through fanzines, everyone was seeking the holy grail of oh, role-playing yeah, games yeah. and systems, whereas now what you've got is people say... Well, no, this system's great for doing that kind of game, and this system's yeah. great for doing this kind of game. But and then that wasn't the case. And as well, the way that things were fixed back then was increasing the level of minutiae, wasn't it? To yes. say, yeah. you know, to make this more authentic and real, 
therefore we, we need another rule to yes. deliver yeah. it um, yeah. whereas nowadays it's the opposite isn't it you go simpler and just think yeah. well you can interpret that if you like yeah. you know, yeah. things are much simpler yeah my oddity and it really is an oddity uh, and we picked this up because over the last few weeks we've been doing the White Dwarf Book Club on a Tuesday inviting members of the Grog Squad to comment on issues of White Dwarf and one that we've been looking at recently is issue 33 which is the first one that I got and in that there is the brevet rank for <laughs> low level characters by <laughs> okay. Lou Pulsifer this is going to put the on guard rules into a cocked hat, isn't it? I yeah. suspect. <laughs> no, it was very popular to uh, knock Lou Pulsifer. Mm. Yes, he was a controversialist, wasn't he? I think yeah. that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> Lou's views. Lou's views. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And but this this is this is funny. So, I mean, the fact that it's called the brevet rank tells you all you need to know because a brevet rank in military means that it's a rank that you're given. Like an honorary rank. Oh, well, right. you're not paid at that level. Oh, you just right. acknowledge okay. it being that level. Right. Because what this does, it solves a problem that must occur an awful lot. Okay. Where you're at a convention and you're running a ninth level game okay. and somebody turns up with a lower level character, mm. maybe fourth level. So what do you do? What do you do in that situation? I think in the past, uh, Dirk, I, I've just said sod off. This is for ninth level characters. Yeah. Are cool. you suggesting there's? Are you suggesting there's a way through this? Well, there are some alternatives. Oh, there I are see. Some alternatives. Do, do tell me. I'm <laughs> <laughs> keen to learn. Because uh, you're probably thinking, you're probably thinking, well, why not? Why not roll a ninth level character? That is what I'm thinking. Yeah. In fact, at a convention, I'd just have some ninth level characters in a bag and say, "Hey, play one of these." But no, you can't play a fourth level character. But the trouble with that, you see, what you're doing is giving him a ninth level or her a ninth level yeah, character, am, and they have not earned it. They've not. And that you're would be right. unfair. That's, yeah, that's it's wrong, isn't it? Now you put it like that, I think sod off. You can't play is a better answer. <laughs> or you have the brevet level, oh, okay. where you temporarily confer upon them uh, the ninth level, oh. and then take it away at the end. How stupid. <laughs> that sounds just stupid, doesn't it? That's more stupid than saying, A, sod off, or B, well, I've just got a pre-gen here. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do? Your fourth-level druid becomes a ninth-level druid, and then after the adventure just forgets it all. <laughs> Think, God, that was a good adventure. I felt so much more powerful, but now I'm, I'm back to being a fourth-level no-mark druid. You can't shape-change. I think it goes back to that um, that feeling that we had about D and D. That it was intriguing because we used to read those articles and yes. think, "Bloody hell, what is this game? It sounds so yes." I, that, I, you're right. That was the thing. It was it was really mysterious. Yeah. It was a real mysterious. So game. esoteric and weird. And what, yeah. what are all these things? It seems so complicated, and we wanted to buy into yeah. it, but we weren't allowed. But to. we weren't allowed to. We did. We didn't understand it. Now, no, no. yeah, it's, it's an odd. Odd thing, and I, I think as well what it highlights is but there was a bit of a culture clash in White Dwarf as well, in that D&D players sometimes appeared, and I don't know if I can say this on the podcast, but I will do, like assholes. 
You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. They would they would have an argument for, oh, you haven't earned a ninth level character. And you would think, well, who are these people? What yeah. is going on here? Yeah. And that, there was that sense of there were, there were slightly different camps there, whereas, you know, RuneQuest Traveller wasn't quite like that. But D&D had a, a propensity to overcomplicate things and perhaps find issues that weren't really there yeah. to deal with. There was a bit of that going on. Like the Monster Mark system, famously. It's the most yeah. famous example, isn't it? Of, it's such a convoluted thing to what? To work out whether... You should throw a goblin against a second-level character. I mean, God Almighty, you know. But there was that. It was, on the one hand, esoteric, and on the other hand, there was a sense of, are these people a bunch of burks? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm still not sure. <laughs> so, I mean, looking over the um, scale of the uh, white dwarfs, it's clear that. The ones that I've got most memories of are the ones from the mid thirties mm. to the sixties, yeah. yeah. and then any ones before that I can't really remember well, using it. Or yeah. ones afterwards, and I found as well when I went through them chronologically, um, there were gaps. And when I looked at the contents pages of the ones that I didn't have online, the PDFs of the ones I didn't have, I could see why I didn't have it because there was a point from the sort of seventies, eighties, where you'd get paranoia. Warhammer, Judge Dread, Roleplay. I didn't have any of the games, so I must have looked at it and thought, ah, there's, there's nothing in it now for me. Yes. And then the next issue I did have, because there was something in that I was interested in, Cthulhu yeah. or RuneQuest. So there were, there were those kind of, later on there were those gaps. I don't know how I feel about the fact that it's lost that feeling, that feeling of something coming through your door every month, mm. landing on your doormat. And that excitement of having a physical yeah. object, that you know, to new gamers, that sensation isn't there anymore, is it? Well, no, and I suppose it's like any anything these days: music, TV, everything. It it used to be quite focused, so it would focus your mind. Here's the magazine. These are the latest games. Some reviews of the latest games. Is some new ideas, that kind of thing. Whereas I suppose now it's, the world's just awash with, if you know where to look, it's awash with new games and new things, isn't it? Yeah. In, in the RPG or in any, in any sphere. So, yeah, I know what you mean. It's kind of lost that, you know. But. Ah, well. But there you go. And it's gone like a golden wonder. We'll have to. <laughs> you can still buy a golden wonder, can't you? It's harder to yeah harder to get them though, isn't it? Yeah. Well, maybe I don't know. Maybe just is round here. I don't know. I wonder if they do Yankee flavour ones. They are Moorish. The cheese and onion ones, cheese and onion Ringos, they're by Golden Wonder. Maybe they've got a bit of yak in them. I can't stop eating them once they start. <laughs> Let's not start eating them, else we'll never get out of that hatch. No. Till no. next time. See you later, Blythe. Goodbye. Next time, Mike talks about his time on White Dwarf and creating the Realm of Chaos supplement for Warhammer and his experiences of working in the video gaming industry. Daily Dwarf will be back with an overview of White Dwarf's history. Every Tuesday on the grognardfiles.com site I've started a White Dwarf book club. On a Monday I roll a d100 on Twitter at the grognardfile 
and pick an issue to read along in depth. Review copies are available, so please do try and participate, as I'll keep it going for as long as there are 10 comments or more. It's been really enjoyable so far. The Grugzy 19 is now available as a PDF to Patreons whenever you join or whatever level. The Grugzine is an annual gift to those who support the GrugPod. The monthly tips in the hat are important for covering the hosting bills. I've just paid one and supporting the development of other projects. I'll be revamping the campaign in July. I've got an idea for the Grugzine, which is a bit of a change from previous publications. Watch this space. Thank you to all the patrons. It's great to have your support and it really does encourage us to try and get this better. I'll be giving an individual shout out to the new patrons in the next part. Until then, adios amigos.